Hey, everybody. Welcome to another Ithaca Bound podcast episode. I'm your host, Andrew Schiestel, joining the show today from Turkey. And this is the podcast where we explore history and mythology in the Mediterranean basin. Today, Dr. Julietta Steinhauer joins the show again. On July 14, 2021, Dr. Steinhauer joined the show, and we had a conversation about the previous Roman province of Asia. Today, Dr. Steinhauer is back on the show, and we're going to speak about what religion was like in Ptolemaic Egypt. Dr. Steinhauer is a lecturer at University College London, based in the UK. Her research focuses on religion, religious minorities, and migration in the Aegean during the Hellenistic period and the early Roman period. She's author of the book, Religious Associations in the Post-Classical Polis, which was published by Franz Steiner Verlag, and she's co-editor of the forthcoming book, Beneath the Surface, Renegotiating Gender Agency, which is scheduled for release in 2022 and will be published by Brill. And Dr. Steinhauer joins the show today from Germany. Welcome back on the show, Julieta. Thank you very much, Andrew, for this lovely intro. It's good to be here again. Good to connect with you, as always, Julieta. So let's confirm the time period that we're speaking about today. So we're chatting about and exploring what scholars know about religion in Ptolemaic Egypt. What time period is that? So when we talk about Ptolemaic Egypt, what we mean is the time from the first Ptolemy uh, who set up camp, so to speak, in Egypt in 305 BCE. And this period then ends in 31 with the victory of Augustus over Cleopatra VII, the last Ptolemy. So we talk about a period of roughly 300 years. Okay. To create sufficient background and context, and then we'll, of course, work our way into the details in the, in the dialogue, what was religion like during the Ptolemaic Egypt period? So I think what we need to sort of set out first is the country that the Ptolemies came into, which is Egypt. And Egypt always had a sort of very traditional and quite inward-looking um, religious culture. So the pharaoh would be the sort of head of the state, but also the head of religion and was the main communicator between the gods and the humans. And this position of the pharaoh was taken up by the Ptolemies. Um, so therefore, they inherited in a way a lot of what we understand as ancient Egyptian religion. However, with the Ptolemies coming in, a lot of new Greek or new to Egypt um, Greek cults were also coming into Egypt. And the Ptolemies, over the 300 years that they reigned in Egypt, introduced quite a lot of Greek cults in Egypt, but also at the same time supported older cults in Egypt, so ancient religion from the pharaonic period. When does some of that activity in the records begin to show up? Is there a, is there a particular sovereign, a particular pharaoh during the, the period that begins to um, perform some of the activities that you described there, Julieta? Well, actually, already Alexander, when he conquered Egypt, was declared a pharaoh. And he worshipped at the temple, or he went to the oracle of Zeus Amon um, in the south. And he would be someone who is also associated with the Greek-Egyptian god Serapis. So we have, from the very beginning, um, a clear sort of policy towards religious inclusion. And 
Tommy the first was already known for his engagement in religious activities, setting up festivals to Greek gods, but also starting to support local uh, sanctuaries, especially um, his successor is uh, famous for a lot of uh, uh, religious activities in Egypt, so Ptolemy II, and the queens themselves were um, involved in temple building, in religious activities, and were themselves worshipped as queens and as goddesses. They were identified as Greek goddesses Aphrodite, but also as Egyptian goddesses Isis and Hathor. So we have sort of from the very beginning a very clear um, policy here to support religious life in many ways. Um, and another thing that we might want to think about is that Egypt was also host to the early Jewish com um, diaspora communities. So therefore we have yet another sort of religious um, group here, which is pretty much completely different to Egyptian and Greek religion being a monotheistic religion compared to the polytheistic religion of ancient Egypt and Greece. Okay, so there's a few different points we can probably speak more about in the, in the conversation today. So in the, in the early part of this period, what, what is showing most? Is, it, is, there, is there clear delineation? Because you, you mentioned some tr uh, traditional type worship within Egypt, and then, and then some Greek-oriented worship in, in Egypt as well, both, um, I guess, the, the, the former meaning uh, traditional Egyptian religion. So is it clear delineation with those festivals and other forms of, of worship, or is there, right from the early part of this period, a... Uh, a, a coalescing to some reasonable degree uh, towards these two forms of worship? I guess one of the um, beauties, so to speak, about the polytheistic religious system is that the gods works, work in both languages, so to speak, in both um, cultures. So, for example, the um, Ptolemies from the very beginning um, supported the temple of um, Horus in Etfu, um, in the south of Egypt, in Upper Egypt. And Horus was at the same time seen as Apollo. So this sanctuary, even though it was built in Egyptian style, um, served at the same time the Greek idea of Apollo and the Egyptian Horus. And this, I think, is true for most of the um, Egyptian sanctuaries that were supported by the Ptolemies, um, the very famous sanctuary of the goddess Isis, for example, um, at Philae, which is still um, an impressive building, equally built um, under the Ptolemies and until Tiberius, basically. Um, Isis was a goddess that was already very early on identified with Demeter. So here too we have inscriptions from Greek visitors as much as from Egyptian visitors. However, I think one of the things, and I'm not sure if that's what you want to um, sort of go to, but is the animal worship. 
And this would be perhaps one of the main differences between Greek religion and Egyptian religion. Let's make sure we get there in, in the conversation, Julieta. Okay. Speak more about that. Okay. Um, is, is there anything in this period, again, if we say the earlier part of the period, is there anything in the records that show that there is a substantial number of indigenous Egyptian people wor worshipping some of these newer deities that have been imported into the into the region through through the process of the Ptolemaic kingdom is there is there anything that indicates that the indigenous Egyptian people were adding to their adding these new deities to their worshiping process or, and or is this a case where these Greek-oriented deities were being primarily, predominantly worshipped by Greek people that immigrated to Egypt during this period? So from the uh, evidence um, we have, we can see that Egyptian people also worshipped Greek deities, but in particular, they worshipped um, the so-called hybrid deities such as Serapis, um, a god that was basically based on a on a, an Egyptian deity and then sort of received a Hellenistic or a Greek makeover. And we have inscriptions which refer to that god in Demotic um, by Egyptians. So there is that as well. However, it's not as much as you could imagine. So the Egyptian traditions are still staying in place and the Egyptian priests are still using hieroglyphs um, and demotic to write their inscriptions. So arguably, there's more interest by Greeks and later the Romans in Egyptian religion than by Egyptians in Greek religion in Egypt. Okay. So you'd mentioned Horus and Apollo had this symbiotic type of identity uh, based on how people may have worshipped or identified these two deities in this period. Can you expand on that? So, and to create background, what Horus would traditionally, his, his attributes, uh, traditionally based within Egyptian religion, would Apollo, the same type of question with Apollo, and then and then if that if that changes in any way those two those two items if those if those change in any way or if the relationship that people had to those deities uh, changed in any way can you can you explain can you explain that? Well, it is not as simple because <clears throat> they are not alike in a, you know in any strict sense, um, but. They are both associated with the sky and they are both sort of also somewhat associated with, with the um, kingship. Um, but they are, in fact, different gods. However, it does, because the way polytheistic religion works is that you can very um, easily sort of identify one aspect 
of a deity that works for yourself in that moment. And from that perspective, they both sort of have this identification with the sky um, and the sun. So here we have a clear sort of connection, but when you look at the detail, there's not really um, that much. However, we have the ancient authors who tell us that uh, the Egyptians called Apollo Horus in their own language. So there's always some overlap. However, if you look at it more specifically, you'll see that they're quite different just because the belief system, um, if we can call it that, is quite different, um, especially when it comes to the afterlife. Okay. You'd mentioned the Egyptian deity, the ancient Egyptian deity Serapis, and there was some kind of hybrid process that occurred with the belief system around Serapis. Can you expand on what's known about that? Yes. So Serapis would perhaps not be classified strictly as an Egyptian deity because um, from what we gather, um, Serapis is sort of an evolution of a god that was worshipped in Memphis that was the, the Apis bull, um, who after he dies becomes mummified and then um, sort of personifies um, Osiris. So it's quite complex. Um, I give you that. So, it, but bear with me. So we have a deity called Osirapis. Um, so the the sort of combination of Osiris and Apis, and he was worshipped in Memphis by early Greeks who had lived there in the fourth century. And from this Osirapis, we believe the deity Serapis was created, and in the early Ptolemaic period, and we have a lot of legends from much later periods, which sort of refer back to this event. Um, this deity was then sort of reinvented with um, the help of a Greek priest, Timotheus, and um, an Egyptian priest, Manetho, um, who created sort of um, a, a sort of Greek version of that god. And Ptolemy, in his dream, saw a statue that looked like the Greek god Pluto, the Greek god Pluto of the underworld, and clearly um, Osiris is also associated with the underworld, so that somewhat makes sense. Um, and from this, the deity Serapis was created, and this is clearly a deity that was worshipped by Egyptians and Greeks, um, coming back to what we talked about earlier. And this goes so far that we have evidence of Egyptian priests from Memphis going to Greece and setting up cults for this specific sort of hybrid deity, which has clearly an Egyptian origin, but also um, a lot of sort of Greek elements around him. What's known about the attributes of Serapis during this period of time? So <clears throat> the sort of newly formed version that um, appears in the early Ptolemaic period uh, would look a little bit like Zeus. So it's a father deity. You can imagine sitting on a throne with a beard and on his hat, he's wearing a kalathos, that would be this um, sort of corn measure basket. Um, he was also sometimes depicted with a scepter in his hand, which sort of is associated with the rule of the underworld. 
and then Kerberos, the dog uh, who famously guards the underworld, is sometimes also depicted next to him. Um, and Serapis then is in the um, Ptolemaic understanding uh, associated with Isis as well. Well, not associated, but sort of paired with Isis, who then is his wife, um, just like Osiris is Isis's wife in Egyptian mythology. Therefore, you find that Serapis and Isis are very often worshipped together in Egypt, but also outside of Egypt as a couple. And to create the to create juxtaposition, you, so you described the attributes during this period of time. It, what so what would the attributes have been? Can you create a similar list pre previous to this this period? Well, we don't really know because we don't have any evidence for this god before the end of the fourth and early third century. But um, what we believe is that it was sort of Osiris in the underworld, and Osiris is always associated with um, the pharaoh. So Osiris is the first pharaoh in Egyptian mythology, and therefore um, he will be depicted as a pharaoh, but also as a mummy at the same time, because he was the one who was torn apart and put together by his um, sister Isis and resurrected. So we have um, this sort of idea of the combination between kingship and this deity, which is quite present also in Serapis. Under the Ptolemies, there was a Serapeon created, in fact, under Ptolemy III um, in Alexandria. And this temple was very famous. And it was sort of associated also with the library um, in Alexandria. And it is probably most famous for its destruction in, at the end of the fourth century, um, where Christians sort of plundered the uh, Serapeon. And um, this was the last sort of act in this place. So here we have the sanctuary that, that stood for 500 years and longer um, and was very successful. And this is not a coincidence because Serapis, having said that he is a, a deity that is also associated with kingship, was quite popular under the Roman emperors of the third century. So here we have a whole story of a god that was created by or during um, the reign of the Ptolemies, but is then being picked up again as a sort of supporter of the later Roman emperors. Is there any evidence of pharaohs, their family members, other high-ranking officials in this period being mum mummified? Yes, there were indeed. So we have evidence for the first Ptolemy being mummified and um, the ancient author Suetonius, when he writes about um, the life of Augustus, tells us that Augustus went to see the mummy of Alexander, but was shown the mummy of Ptolemy I and said to um, the priest, actually, I came to see a king, not a corpse. So this was definitely um, the case, yes. Okay. So let's go back to an earlier topic point that you brought up, Julieta. You had mentioned animal worship. Do you want to expand on what's known about that in this period? Yes, um, it's a really interesting one because 
we have sort of two things that stand out. On the one hand, literature or literary sources are quite hostile towards um, animal um, worship. They basically say the Egyptians are, you know, out of their mind, they're worshiping animals, and this is not, you know, proper religion. On the other hand, during the Ptolemaic period, um, there is a huge rise in animal worship, and we can um, see that Greeks and Romans themselves were also involved here. So this is something that actually really um, increases in this period. So while the literature suggests it's something that um, the Greeks and Romans would see as foreign, in fact, um, there's definitely evidence for it to thrive under the Ptolemies. And one of the examples that I find is quite fascinating mm, with regard to that is the fairly recently excavated Bubasteon in Alexandria. This is a sanctuary to the e Egyptian cat goddess um, Bubastis. And um, this was basically um, supported by Berenike II, the wife of Ptolemy III, um, who ruled 246 to 221 BCE. And here they found over 1,500 fragments of cats um, and statues of cats, but also some um, Greek um, votive objects. So it's not, not merely that. But um, clearly also from, from top down, there is the sense that um, there's a support for these um, for the worship of gods in animal form or part animal form. And um, we have huge sanctuaries, uh, sorry, cemeteries with um, mummified animals in that period that you could buy and then dedicate to a god. Um, we have reports from authors, travelers who've gone to sanctuaries to look at these animals. There's a huge interest in it. Um, and here, as I said, so literature and archaeology don't really match up, but it seems to be that this was a sort of a, a, a part of Egyptian religion that was really kept and really re, sort of revived in this period. Okay. I'd asked a question earlier about indigenous Egyptians, if, if they were worshipping some of these newer deities in the region that were imported uh, through the Ptolemaic kingdom. I'm going to ask a similar question, and it's going to be for the, for the Greek people that would have immigrated to Egypt in this period of time. Is there anything in the record that substantially shows that their worship habits changed in any way, being oriented more to some of these Egyptian, traditional Egyptian deities? Or is it, or is it a case where what's coming up more is more and more examples of homogenous deities, uh, hybrid type, type deities, etc.? No, I think there are definitely there's definitely a case to be made uh, for Greeks and Egypt, um, sorry Greeks and Romans worshiping also the Egyptian gods, um, and they would go and you know it's proper pilgrimage to some of these temples, and they would then like for example in Philae there's a whole wall filled with inscriptions by 
Greek travelers who come here and give a little prayer to Isis. So there definitely is an interest there. But I think if you conceptually think about it, to, to a Greek, Isis, even though she's a really old Egyptian deity, was perhaps equally a Greek deity. So um, I think I, I said that earlier, it's, it's quite complex for us to understand, but there is sort of a notion that it doesn't really sort of the name, you know, in one language doesn't mean the same, in a, you know, it can be something completely different in another language um, or in another understanding. So um, if a Greek basically goes and worships Isis, I'm not sure whether they also thought about Demeter in this sense, for example, because Demeter and Isis have been assimilated since the fifth century BCE already. So there is that part. And here we, it's, it's hard to say how, how to draw a line, what a worshipper was thinking when they were giving a votive to either deity at some point, um, which I think we need to keep in mind as well. However, if you look at the way in which these Egyptian cults become extremely popular outside of Egypt in Greece, then you think, then I think you have to, a case can be made um, for them being uh, deities that in their own right, so to speak. So we have so much evidence for worship of Isis in Greece and in Rome during the Ptolemaic period. Um, that we have to assume that for these people, this is a sort of new deity that is not necessarily the same as Demeter. So you can see it gets quite complex um, when we think about it um, from that perspective. Were there a diverse range of deities being worshipped through the state in this period of time, or did there seem to be some form of consolidation with a core set of deities in this in this period of time? This is a really good question. Um, so I think one of the points in, 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 in Egyptian religion that we need to consider is that it is also, in a way, very local religion. So most deities are associated with one specific city. However, there's also a general understanding um, and festivals that apply to, to, to the whole of Egypt. So, for example, the mysteries of Osiris are celebrated everywhere in Egypt. And then there are very local uh, gods and deities that um, are only worshipped there and with specific festivals within one village or town. Um, so I think. If we think about, if you ask me, basically, what is the pantheon in Egypt, then surely the gods that stand out must be Isis, Horus, and Serapis, um, I'd say. So these might be the three sort of Egyptian gods that stand out. If you think about the Greek gods, then Dionysus played a huge role here because Dionysus is actually a god that was closely associated with the Ptolemies, and the Ptolemies actually claimed descendants from Dionysus uh, to sort of gain, uh, you know, a good grounding for their, um, for their power, so to speak, to, 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 to legitimize their power. Um, <clears throat> and Dionysus is equally associated with Osiris. So Dionysus 
we know of Dionysus festivals which were celebrated everywhere um, in Egypt and he is also the god that is very closely linked to um, the east from the very beginning he's the god who comes from India basically so he is sort of mm, a, a god that sort of works quite well in this role and yeah as I said it's it's one of those uh, deities that works for the Ptolemies as well Ptolemy the fourth himself claimed to be Dionysus at some point um so he would probably be the most important Greek god um and then we have Aphrodite who's also sometimes associated with Isis but who is in particular associated with the queens so we have these hybrid versions um, of Asino and Berenike, where they're both um, represented as Aphrodite. Um, and therefore, Aphrodite is a very important um, goddess here. And one of the things that come with Aphrodite are the maritime qualities. And this is important, and I hope I'm not going too far here, but Aphrodite is seen as the protectress of the sailors as well. And um, because, as I said, at the very beginning, uh, Egypt used to be quite secluded, quite inward looking and not really, it didn't really have a deity that would serve the sailors because there wasn't so much need for it. Whereas the Greeks as a nation with so many islands and that was really moving through the sea for really anything to get from A to B, um, then introduced that um, deity um, or made it quite sort of important here. Um, and so there is this hybrid, again, hybrid, I don't know if that's actually here the right word, but um, deity created at Cape Sephirion um, at the coast near Alexandria, um, which is actually called Aphrodite Arsinoe Sephiritis. So Aphrodite Arsinoe of Cape Sephirion and she clearly is a deity that is created to protect the sailors and to send them, you know, away with good wishes for their travels. Is it clear why certain sovereigns were identifying themselves as certain deities? Yes. So, I mean, to be identified um, with Isis and Osiris, who in ancient mythology were the original pharaonic couple, makes a lot of sense. So the Ptolemies would definitely choose these deities um, to, to be sort of close associated, closely associated with them, um, to just um, add another layer of uh, legitimation, le legitimization, sorry, um, of their throne. Um, so this is something that really is important here but with Arsinoe and Aphrodite it's probably a little bit of a different story um so Arsinoe was also identified with Aphrodite or sort of combined with Aphrodite and um Arsinoe the second was the wife of Ptolemy the second and queen of Egypt so she had a temple built to herself at Cape Sephirion near um Alexandria in wide Alexandria actually and um she was then worshipped here as a deity combined with Aphrodite. So she gives that sort of um, protection to sailors and is the deity that will be 
the one that sailors or you know anyone who, who who is going to travel by sea will worship and will um, dedicate to before leaving the port of Alexandria. You mentioned earlier, Julietta, Jewish communities in Egypt in this period of time. When do they come into the records? And can you expand on that that initial point or points that you had made? Yes. So I think if we think about um, the Jewish community um, in Alexandria, obviously the Ptolemies create a new city, the new city of Alexandria. And in this city, um, we have a very cosmopolitan um, demography. Uh, so people come from all over the Mediterranean. We have people from Africa coming here, people from Italy coming here, um, from Macedonia, obviously, but also from Greece and from um, Palestine, of course, as well. So we have a lot of um, a very mixed sort of new cosmopolitan city and I, scholars aren't entirely sure, but 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 there is talk of um, even 35% of the city's population in the Roman period being Jewish. And we have one of uh, our main sources here is Philo, a uh, Jewish um, philosopher who writes um, at the end of the first century, or the, not at the end, sorry, in the middle of the first century, and who tells us a little bit about it. And he, for example, claims that at that point in time, every um, block in Alexandria had its own synagogue. So by that time, there must have been quite a few Jewish um, communities in Alexandria. So the important thing I think is um, these Jews were drawn to Egypt um, through the military a lot. So a lot of them came as um, soldiers to fight for the Ptolemies. Um, but also what happens here is that we have for the first time, you know, proper diaspora communities. So there is the need for the Jews to sort of communicate their own religion to um, the local, or well, not so local, but to the um, to the to the king basically and to the Greeks. So this is a time in which um, the for the first time actually the Torah is being translated into um, into Greek, and this is what we call the Septuagint, and this allegedly happened under Ptolemy II. So here we have the king being extremely interested in um, a new religion to them, new to them, obviously. I mean, the Jewish religion is much older than that, but there is clearly, um, initially at least, an interest and also protection. We have evidence uh, for um, synagogues being um, asylos, which means that they are protected by the emperor. And at the very beginning, at least, there seems to be a good sort of relationship between Jews and others here in Alexandria and in Egypt per se. Um, obviously, there's also a lot of um, problems that will come up in the Roman period, but for the time being in the Ptolemaic period, um, it is a thriving community. Did Judaism at all influence the worship of those that weren't Jewish people? This is a really good question. Again, um, it's 
really hard to, to tell because obviously the uh, Jewish communities were quite inclusive. So it's difficult for an outsider to become part of it, um, thinking about the way in which you could become a Jew. Uh, but we do know that there is there were groups of people who were quite interested in this idea of one God. Um, and um, we have um, a sort of movement of people which would then start to worship the highest God, which is Theos Hypsistos, which is the highest God in the Jewish texts. And you find um, this throughout, um, especially in the first century CE, but also um, a little bit earlier, that idea of, you know, having one God above the others, which then becomes extremely um, popular in the Ptolemaic period. So <clears throat> while we don't know of any case, or at least I don't, uh, where um, <clears throat> a non-Jew decides um, to really become, or, or has the possibility really to become Jewish, I'm sure that there's a lot of um, exchange of which we don't really know. and. You have to consider that the early Jewish diaspora is quite critical a moment because there are not yet such rules set. So people go to various places, not only Alexandria, but also in the Greek world, and, and set up camps there, so to speak, and, 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 and um, they will um, live their religion there. But how exactly that happened, we don't know because um, we have very few sources who give us information on that. We have a few sources which tell us that Jews did also worship pagan gods. So the idea is that most people think that pagans also had an interest or looked sort of around the corner when, when there was a, a Sabbat um, celebrated or so. But we don't really have sort of hard evidence for an exchange in that direction. In the context of the period of time that we're speaking about, would you say that there, there was a high degree of religious tolerance in the state? Um, well, I think scholars have very different opinions about that. From what I can see, I would say yes, but that's partly because there isn't really religions as such, um, as we see that with Christianity and then in the Middle Ages, were not formed institutions. So therefore, um, the gods are everywhere and they can look, you know, anywhere you like, from animal to half animal to um, human to uh, just sort of a power, um, as we see with the philosophers, for example. So therefore, all of this is valid and all of this works. So there isn't really um, a reason to exclude any deity or any sort of religious belief or thought. Um, so therefore, talking about tolerance is, is a little bit problematic because there isn't really anything to tolerate, if you know what I mean. This has been a fascinating dialogue today, Julieta. Thanks for coming on the show and chatting more about this topic. Thank you for having me. So again, everybody, Dr. Steinhauer is author of the book, Religious Associations in the Post-Classical Polis. She's also co-editor of the forthcoming book, Beneath the Surface, Renegotiating Gender Agency. 
I'll drop links to both the books in the show notes on the Ithacabound.com's associated subpage to this episode. Julieta and everybody listening, as always, wishing you a marvelous journey. Bye for now. Hey again, if you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe to the podcast and I wish you a bountiful rest of your day. Bye for now.